I've kind of gone back and forth uh, between a number of things. I know downstairs there is a, a label. I was going to kind of put it into the theme of what we've been teaching on. And it is in the theme, but it's a little bit different. I know that as an NBC student, having been one myself just a few years ago, you hear a lot of truth. You hear a lot from the Word of God. And, and there are a, a number of passages that discuss the importance of that, right? Hearing the Word of God and, and, and why that's so important. Uh, but, and I know this sounds funny, it's not enough to hear the Word of God. We must do something about it. And, and so as I've been thinking about this, uh, I, I turn to the, the letter of James. Now, the letter of James has been rightly called Christianity in blue jeans. Many of you guys have heard that expression because... Uh, It's been given to to James because of its extremely practical nature. And this letter, James, the letter uh, from James, is just that. It's extremely practical. It is practical if you're single. It is practical if you're married. It's practical if you're old or young, rich or poor. There is no category that escapes the practical nature of the letter written by our Lord's half-brother James. Others have referred to it as the Proverbs of the New Testament, because of its emphasis on wise living. It's it's the how-tos, if you will, of the Christian life. In fact, no other book in the New Testament puts such a strong emphasis on the doing or the how-to-live aspects of the Christian life. There are only five chapters in James, and in those five chapters, there are 53 imperatives. 53 commands, which just happens to be the highest ratio of imperatives uh, in in any other book of the New Testament. So he wrote this how-to letter as an encyclical. That's uh, my new favorite word. It's not written to just one church, like 1 Corinthians, where Paul wrote and he was addressing specific things. No, James wrote this letter as an encyclical to go to, in fact, verse 2 says, all the 12 tribes scattered in in, in the diaspora. Right? So he, he wrote it as a general letter for many churches to be circulated outside the land of Israel. Now, because it was not written to just one church, like 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, we can discern that its intent, James's intent, was to address general issues. General issues that he knew that all churches would encounter. So James wrote this as a practical, how-to-live-the-Christian-life kind of letter for many different churches in many different areas. And he did so with one unifying theme. And I didn't know this before I began to dig into the letter of James, but there is one unifying theme, one glue, if you will, that brings everything together. And that is this. It is the comparison between the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, or the wisdom from below and the wisdom from above. Now, where I'm going to read at here toward the end of chapter 1, by that point, we'll read it here in a moment, James has already addressed two major issues related to the Christian life. The first one is trials, how to face trials of various kinds. You you all know that from verse 2, right? And James's pastoral heart really shows through here at the beginning of the letter. Being a pastor, remember James was the pastor in Jerusalem. Uh, He knew that all believers would have to face all kinds of trials. Paul knew this as well. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Paul said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so James explains to believers how to face trials with godly wisdom 
as opposed to worldly wisdom. You see, worldly wisdom wants us to blame God in the midst of a trial, saying that God is tempting them. But godly wisdom faces the trial by considering it joy. It's not a cliche, right? To consider even the trials a joy, knowing what they will produce in us, namely endurance and maturity. So that's the first thing that James addressed in this practical blue jeans kind of letter to Christians, the way to face trials with godly wisdom. However, the second issue which James turns his attention to is of equal importance, and that is the Christian's relationship to the preached word of God. Now go with me, if you would, to James chapter 1, if you're not already there. This is hugely important, my friends, for Bible college students because of our exposure, our wonderful exposure, to the Word of God. Go to James. It seems like everybody's there. I'm the only one flipping. <clears throat> James chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 18 to 21. And then we'll get into our text of consideration. Look at verse 18 with me. James writes this. By his own choice, that's God's choice, he gave us a new birth through the message of truth so that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. So, He talks about the message of truth, the the word of truth, right? And then he says this in verse 19, My dearly loved brothers, understand this, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For man's anger does not accomplish the righteousness of God. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil excess, humbly receive the implanted word, which is also able to save you. So James turns his attention from the trials of life to the word of God, or as he calls it, the word of truth and our relationship to it. In verse 19, uh, he says this, understand this, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And I would submit to you that that's not generally, that's with respect to the word of God, that we are to be quick to hear it, slow to speak against it. And slow to anger when we hear it. Now, I know from my own church that on a very regular basis, after the sermon is preached, people will come to my pastor and ream him or try to to criticize him for one thing or another. If only they had heeded the word of James, that when we hear the preached word of God, we should be slow to speak against it, quick to listen, slow to anger. If only they would have heeded that. Now, uh, those verses there end here in verse 21, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. That brings us to what I want to talk with you guys about this morning or this afternoon, beginning in verse 22. So read verse 22 with me. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Here are James's instructions. Be doers of the word and not hearers only, Deceiving yourselves. Now, in order to avoid any misconceptions about what James is saying, let's all acknowledge that the hearing of the word of God, being exposed to the Bible, is extremely important in the life of a Christian, right? James is not saying, uh, he's not minimizing the importance of the preached word of God. No, we know exposing ourselves, hearing the word of God, must not be diminished. Let me give you a few reasons why. Number one, we know that Scripture sanctifies us, doesn't it? There's a correlation, a direct one, between Scripture and sanctification. John 17, Jesus in his high priestly prayer, he said this, Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 
So we know Jesus understood in his concept of sanctification that there is a line between the word of God and our sanctification. Another reason why we must expose it, it cleans us. The scriptures cleanse us. Ephesians 5 says this. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And so it seems that Paul, in his understanding of the word and the word's relationship to the Christian, is that it, there's a cleansing effect. So it sanctifies us. It cleanses us. Number three, it nourishes our soul. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 4, the, the devil comes to Jesus at his weakest moment, and he begins to tempt him, right? And Jesus quotes the words of Scripture. He quotes from Deuteronomy. And he says uh, uh, that man shall not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. And it seems that in Jesus' mind, he sees that the bread nourishes the body and, and the word nourishes the soul. And so just as we are dependent on bread, unless you're gluten-free, uh, and then in that case, just food, right? Just like food nourishes our bodies and we can't live without it, the scriptures nourish our soul. And, 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 if, and if I were to ask you, if I wanted to get a good grasp on how your soul is doing, right? How your spiritual walk is, I could figure that out with respect to your relationship to the word, because it is the thing that nourishes you, nourishes us. So scripture sanctifies, it cleanses, it nourishes. Number four, scripture equips us. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I don't know if anybody has heard those verses this semester, but it says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for four things, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, and all of that is to a purpose, and that purpose is so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the scriptures equip us. And number five, and I know for, for those of you in the survey class, uh, you'll be thinking I'm, I'm, I'm on repetition here. But number five, scripture keeps us from ruining our lives. It keeps us from making a train wreck of our lives. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word, O Lord, is a lamp for my feet and a light to my path. It's like you're in a cave, right? Many of you went to Lewis and Clark caverns, caverns on our first weekend of the fall. And when they turn the lights off, that's what the world is like. You can't see anything. And you have one light to light your path, and that is the word of God. And so when you live by it, you can see the path. When you put that aside, you walk in darkness, right? Psalm 119. So those are five reasons. That the scriptures are crucial for us to hear, to expose ourselves to. And so when James says, be hearers of the word, or not only hearers, but also doers, I just say all of that to clarify. He's not critiquing the importance of hearing the word of God. We must hear it, right? But that's not enough. So while there are many reasons for hearing the word of God and why that's important, uh, those five are sufficient to demonstrate how crucial it is to our lives. But I'll say this again, and I know this sounds funny, but hearing the word alone is not enough. Now, in our day and age, there's a popular movement that would say that we just need to think about the scriptures. We just need to contemplate the gospel. And of course, that's true. But the fact is that according to James, hearing is not enough. Hearing is not enough. As Christians, we must not get into the habit of coming to church or as NBC students coming to class, hearing the word of God preached, taught, exposited, and then doing nothing about what we have heard. James says 
that that is self-deception, right? He says that that's deceiving ourselves. In other words, an attitude of passivity, when it comes to the teaching that we hear, an attitude of passivity, when it comes to the reading of our Bibles, an attitude of passivity like that breeds self-deception, thinking that hearing is enough, is deceiving ourselves. Now, for a moment, just step back. Imagine James's pastoral heart. He was wise, right? He knew that Christians would encounter various trials, and he knew that Christians would tend to hear and not do. He knew that that would be... An, he, he did it. He wrote this, remember, as an encyclical, generally. He knew that this would be an issue in the church. The Holy Spirit, who was inspiring him, knew that this would be an issue throughout the ages, throughout the centuries. <clears throat> Now, James gives us, in these verses, a wonderful illustration to help us understand why doing the word is so important. He paints a picture, if you will, of two different kinds of men. And as we go through this, I want you to ask yourself, what kind are you like, right? What kind of man here, what kind of person are you like? So he paints a picture, two men, each man look into a mirror, and then respond differently to what they see. Each man in this illustration functions as a reason. Stick with me. I know, I know uh, you've been in classes this morning, but stick with me. Each one of these men function as a reason why believers must do the word and not hear it only. The first man, as we'll look here in a moment, functions as a negative reason. The second man functions as a positive reason for why we must do the word. So let's begin with the negative. Look with me at verse 23. Here's James's reason. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, he goes away, and right away he forgets what kind of man he was. Now in the first picture here, three things occur, right? The first one is this. The man looks into the mirror. That's the first thing he does. Now think about this with me. The, this looking into the mirror parallels the hearing of the word of God. And this is a good first step. Hearing the word of God is a good thing. Looking into the mirror, right, before you leave for class or before you leave for church or your job uh, is important. If there are issues that need to be addressed, uh, then you must address them. It's an important thing to do. And, and that is the first thing the man does. Now, by the way, it is amazing that James likens the word of God to a mirror. Have you thought about this? Right? For those of you who are going to be with us only one year and then you're going to leave. I'd love to impress this on your hearts every day, but especially even right now. This analogy, the analogy that he gives, is appropriate because the scriptures cast an accurate reflection of reality. The Bible reflects, contrary to popular notion, contrary to what you will hear at other colleges, contrary to what you'll hear in the media, contrary to what you'll hear in the Word, the Bible reflects reality. It tells us what is true and what is real. The world gives us a distorted view of those things. The word of God then functions, as it were, as a mirror, a truth mirror. If you wanted to go to maybe a Disney movie and say, mirror, mirror on the wall, right? Who's the fairest of them all? This is, the Bible is a mirror who can answer, not that question necessarily, <laughs> but questions like that. The, 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 the real questions, the true questions of life. And the first thing that the man does in James's illustration is he peers into a mirror. 
he hears the word of God. The second thing that he does is he goes away, right? His look into the mirror reveals something that calls for action on his part, and then he goes away. This parallels the believer that after hearing the word of God preached, he goes away. It's the same with all of us, right? You hear the word, and then you go away. You you hear it, and then you leave. Well, this man does the same thing. So the first thing, he hears it, right? He looks into the mirror, then he leaves. The third thing the man does, and this is the crucial thing, right away, this is what my text says here, right away, he forgets what kind of man he was. He forgets what needed to be addressed. While looking into the mirror, he saw that there were things on his face, things in his life that needed to be addressed. But instead of addressing them, he walks away and forgets what he needs to do. And this is what James calls self-deception. This is the one who is a hearer of the word and not a doer. And according to James, such a person is seriously engaged in a game of self-deception. Now, many still determine their godliness by the quality of hearing. Do you know what I'm talking about? Many people, they they determine their godliness, their Christian life, based on the, the quality of hearing or reading instead of action and obedience. In being satisfied with simply hearing about how to live a blessed life without applying it, the man in James's illustration becomes a horrible victim of his own self-deception. And this is the negative reason why we must be doers of the word and not hearers only. Now look at the next, the next verse with me. Verse 25. But, but the one who looks, and I know there's some differences in translations here, just listen. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, And is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who acts. This person will be blessed in what he does. So the first man looks into the mirror and then goes away, quickly forgetting what he saw. However, the second man looks intently into the mirror. In other words, he looks with eagerness. He looks with detail. It pictures somebody who comes to the word of God with a prepared heart. Someone who wants to examine himself, examine his life carefully. Then instead of just walking away, he persists in it. He perseveres in it. He ruminates in it. One of my friends uses the verb, I love it, he marinates in it, right? He sits in it. Then instead of just walking away, these are the things that he does. This man, when he leaves then, he doesn't forget what the mirror revealed. He doesn't forget what the scriptures said. No, instead, he puts it into practice. He becomes, as it were, a doer of the word. Look at the phrase for a moment there in verse 25, the perfect law of freedom. It must be said for a moment that the world's understanding of the Bible that the Bible is onerous, right? It's, it's heavy, it's burdensome, is an inaccurate and mis, uh, distorted understanding of what the Bible really is. Have you, have you guys ever thought about this or, or, or heard this kind of thing? Especially if you interact with non-believers a lot, which I hope you guys do, they have this idea, I did too, by the way, you probably did, that the Bible is this heaviness. It's like, why would you follow that, th- those religious rules, right? And, 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 and that, that's some sort of uh, parameters on your life. But James says, no, 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 no. It's the perfect law of freedom. 
right? Instead, the Bible is not onerous. It's not a burden. It is a law of freedom. It's a principle of freedom. Obedience to the word of God brings true freedom, right? And I know that it flips the whole paradigm on its head. Just this phrase, that the Bible is not burdensome. What it is, it's true freedom. When you and I begin to function under the, the, the submission to the word of God, that's what true freedom is. And James understands that. He calls the Bible here, he calls the scriptures the perfect law of freedom. Thus, the man who not only hears the word of God, but obeys it, does it, this man is free. This is the kind of man who's free, the one who is blessed in what he does. And so those are the two reasons that James says we must be doers of the word. Okay, the first one is, uh, uh, um, I'm sorry, the two reasons that James says we must be doers of the word are, are as following. By merely hearing the word of God, but not doing it, we deceive ourselves. That's the negative reason. Positive, but the one who does the word, the one who obeys it becomes blessed. Now listen. As NBC students, you know, you know that we are exposed to wonderful truth. I cannot tell you what an empty bowl I was my freshman year of Bible college when I came here. And it was like my professors just poured one cup after another cup into me and it just filled me up, right? And what I began to think after a little while inadvertently was that the Christian life was all about knowledge, if I could just figure out all the right doctrine, I'd be set, right? And I think James box against that. Is that important? Yeah, so important. But is that it? No. Not only should we be hearers, students of the word, but James says we must be doers. Now, James was Jesus's half-brother, right? James would have been exposed to the teachings of Jesus, the life of Jesus, now, look at, think about this for a moment. This teaching of James is also in the teaching of Jesus. And I want to end here. So go with me, with, if you will, to Matthew chapter 7, the immortal Sermon on the Mount. You may be surprised. Jesus ends the entire Sermon on the Mount with the very same teaching that James teaches in James chapter 1. So go to, James, uh, go to Matthew chapter 7. And look at verse 24 with me. <clears throat> Jesus says this, therefore. Here's the conclusion, right? Here is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Probably one of the most amazing sermons, or maybe the most amazing sermon, influential sermon ever to be preached on this earth. Here's the conclusion. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears, same verb, Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man, a wise man, who built his house on the rock. Familiar statement, right? But here's, here's what he says. It's the one who hears and does. The one who hears and acts. According to James and according to his brother Jesus, hearing is not enough. You have to hear and do. Look at verse 25. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded the house. Yet it did not collapse because its foundation was on the rock. 
Now, this is not Matthew 16, right? Who's the rock in Matthew 16? Well, it could be Jesus, right? Some would say it's the profession of, of Peter that I'll build my church on the rock. Jesus, that's, not, that's Matthew 16. Here, the rock is not that. It is the hearing and doing of the word that is the rock. It is the hearing and doing that is the foundation that keeps the rock or keeps the house stable. Then he says this, and this is scary. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount was preached to his disciples, this is preached to believers. And he says this to believers. But, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house and it collapsed. And here's the punchline. And great was its collapse. Amazing words. Amazing warning for Bible college students, isn't it? Or for, for that matter, for Bible college teachers that get to hear and be exposed to the word of God on a regular basis. Jesus says the wise man hears and does, right? And when the storms of life come, that's what he's talking about. That house will stand. But the one who hears and does not do, that house will collapse under the weight of these things in life. And so, friends... Brothers and sisters, students, please, let's take this word the, word, the word of James, the word of Christ, and let's not just be hearers in and out of class, but immediately be thinking, how does this affect my life? Don't get into the habit that I've been in, where it's just about knowing the right stuff. That's such a dangerous habit, isn't it? No, we got to know rightly and do, right, know rightly and apply. Now look, you guys are going to love this. I'm totally going to end early. But I am going to give you, I'm going to give you three applications. I was kind of thinking, now, how many applications are there of this? <laughs> An infinite amount, right? But I just want to give you three, okay? The first one is this, and, and I think this is specifically to us, right? To us NBCers. The first one is this, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. You know this verse. And, and unfortunately, it sometimes becomes cliché. But Paul says, no matter what you do, whether you eat or you drink, do everything unto the glory of God. That's an imperative. Now, you've heard it. Now, will you do it? My guess is, if you're like me, you will not do it perfectly. <laughs> right? But friends, please, foster a heart, even today, that the things you do, your relationships with one another, when you go back to the dorms, when you sit down to do your homework, even when you go to eat lunch, that you would foster and cultivate a heart that says, Lord, I will do this unto you. You're doing it unto something. Everything we do is unto something. But, but Paul says under the inspiration of God, the Holy Spirit, do it unto the Lord. So that would be the first thing. Don't just hear that 1 Corinthians 10.31 over and over and over again at our school. We must, we we must cultivate a heart of doing. Number two, Romans 6.11. It's actually the first imperative in the entire letter to the Romans. Romans 6.11, I'm going to read it to you. Paul says this, and I say it to you, so you too reckon yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You know that verse, right? Romans 6.11. Reckon yourself. It's an imperative. It's a command. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. Why did Paul say that? 
Yeah, for the same reason that James said what he said in James. He knew that Christians would need to do this. It doesn't just happen automatically. We need to reckon this so in our lives. Let me say it again. Brothers and sisters, NBCers, consider yourselves dead to sin. The reality is you are. If you're in Christ, you have died to sin. There's a new life, and that life is to God in Christ Jesus. Don't just hear that. Let's do it, right? Number three. 2 Corinthians 5.15. Some of you who know me know this is my life verse. 2 Corinthians 5.15. It's not an imperative, actually. It's indicative. But this is what he says. Jesus, uh, uh, verse 15, And he died for all, so that those who live, you know this, don't you? Those who live, that's us, should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. Three last words. And was You say it, raised. Yeah, let the one who lives, that's you, no longer live for himself, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Friends, let's not be hearers of these things. Let's be doers of them. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Just for a few moments here in the middle of our afternoon to come together and hear your word. Lord, we acknowledge as a group that it is the perfect law of freedom that when we submit ourselves zealously to to obedience to it, we find therein the freedom that you offer. Lord, I pray that these verses, as we become familiar with them, would not become cliche, that we would, no matter what we do, eating or drinking, we would do everything to, to make much of you, to make much of your name, to see your name and the name of your Son exalted. Lord, may that be the the true desire of all of our hearts. May it be what we breathe and eat and sleep and drink, and may it be our heartbeat as a school. Lord, I pray, too, that uh, we would take the Romans 6.11 seriously, and that we in our lives, if we haven't been doing this, we would do it today, that we would reckon ourselves dead to sin. The reality is that it has no power over us and that we are now alive to God in Christ. And finally, Lord, please help us each by the power of your Spirit to live no longer for ourselves. That's our default, Lord. We acknowledge our own sin before you. Our default position is to live for ourselves. But I pray, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, you would cause us to obey this, that we would no longer live that way, but instead for your Son who died for us and was raised. Amen.